Welcome to Life After Business, the podcast where your host, Ryan Tansom, brings you all the information you need to exit your company and explore what life can be like on the other side. Welcome back to the Life After Business podcast. This is episode 71. And have you ever wondered what goes on and what it's like inside of the world of venture capital? Well, today we have one of the U.S. top experts on the show, Jeff Grabo, who is head of U.S. venture capital at EY, which is formerly Ernst & Young. And he shares with us his 25 years of experience, the ins and outs of the venture capital world. So you'll learn on today's episode how VCs differ from other types of investors like private equity firms, the various types of VCs, where their money comes from, and what their motivations are, and then what a partnership would look like raising the money, partnering, working with the board, and then looking to eventual exits with that venture capital, and what that would actually feel like as an entrepreneur. So without further ado, here's my episode with Jeff. This episode of Life After Business is brought to you by Solidity Financial's Growth and Exit Planning. Their proven process gives you clarity on all of your exit options and how those options impact your financial success, timing, and future happiness. Sell your company on your time frame to the right buyer at the price you want. Jeff, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. How about yourself? Doing good. Uh, really pumped to have you on the show today. I think you've got some crazy experience and a lot of different uh, stories that we can dive into. And before we do that, you know, you and I sat down at the EY uh, Entrepreneur of the Year Award in Palm Springs. You got a ton of great exposure to the, the amazing people you work with. And you've been there for a long time. And you well, for our listeners' sake, if you kind of just give us a little bit of a journey through, you know, how you started in there and how you ended up into the VC world that you are today. Okay, so it's a, a unique uh, situation and a unique job. So I've been with EY for thirty years. I spent my first five years in the audit practice, and the last twenty-five, I've been really immersed in the venture and entrepreneurial world. And so what I do is I kind of have three things that I do at EY. One is I help EY figure out where we differentially invest our time to work with companies. Um, there's, a, you know, there's a whole host of companies out there and we can't serve them all. So part of my job is to help find companies that will be high growth opportunities for EY to serve and hopefully take public. Uh, second is do a lot of relationship building with VCs that we do a lot of work with. Uh, one thing I'm doing right now and spending a lot of time on is helping connect our large clients who are looking into innovation and figuring out that they can't always invent it in-house and to figure out ways to get them uh, exposed and intertwined into the venture ecosystem and help them connect with companies that might provide either good point solutions for them to use, um, good companies for them to invest in or potentially buy at some point. And then the last is doing uh, thought leadership uh, uh, what's going on in the uh, venture world and things like this. Well, and I think that's a perfect tie in to the kind of the, to setting the stage. Cause I think, you know, from the, the, the listeners, a lot of entrepreneurs, depending on the different size of the companies, what is VC versus private equity versus angel investing and like all the different span, but you know, from the, the, the years of experience, can you kind of give us your definition of VC, you know, what is a VC in its truest nature and where you uh, end up spending your time? Well, so from a venture perspective, venture investors, you know, th their job is to maximize returns for their limited partners. 
And in doing that, they need to find the best use of their time and, and the capital that they've been entrusted to deploy. And so typically they're looking for deals that fit a certain profile. And that profile tends to be what they want is they want companies that have a product by and large that they've sold into a few different situations um, and solutions that have what they call product market fit. They've under, so they've got a solution and they understand where they can sell it into and they've got a, a repeatable, a semi-repeatable process that they'll hopefully refine over time to where they can sell into companies and then hopefully that'll, that'll tackle verticals and then they can pick those solutions up and then take them to other verticals with the idea that they can get acceleration and they grow the, the company over time. Seed situations um, and angel are going to be investing more in the product development cycle and in where things are near solution or maybe in beta. And some of this is there may be some um, bleed over on both sides. But the, the situation is such that it's never been easier to start a company from a cost perspective historically. You know, the, the cost to start these new technology companies has plummeted the last 15 years. We were actually so just, sorry to interrupt, we were just actually talking about that because like literally you don't need $20,000 worth of servers and a bunch of storage and all that stuff. You can, you know, zip some stuff up and put it all together without, you know, the, all the capital expenditure that you used to have. Yeah. And so that has created a very level playing field in uh, a lot of areas where you can, you know, you can cobble together, you know, you can stand up a company on $50,000, which in a lot of regions, that's not difficult to come, come by. And then some people have the ability and the desire to write those kind of checks all the time. And so um, that's, that typically tends to be more of an angel uh, seed environment. Um, but then those types of investors typically will not, per, will not be, heavily involved in the venture side. And then you, then you start to scale into growth capital, um, which could entail private equity. It may not, but private equity tends to invest by and large, given that, you know, because of the size of the, of the funds that they have. And these, these people are setting on multi-billion dollar funds and they need to deploy hundreds of millions of dollars, if not billions at a time. And that's hard to do in a company that's raised, you know, uh, you know, Fifty thousand or a hundred thousand dollars. It's got two customers that may have, you know, that may have paid them one hundred fifty thousand dollars. It'd be interesting to see how they spent, you know, half a billion dollars if they were didn't do that. <laughs> yes, probably not. Well, then you then you get away from your capital discipline and your your uh, your uh, nature of being uh, scrappy, and uh, and that's not a good thing. So, right. um, but that's kind of the, the hopefully that gives you kind of a flavor for the 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 breadth of the capital markets. No, it does because it's important because we've had uh, private equity firms on the show, also family office firms, and just, you know, really seeing the landscape and how everybody's different, I think is just getting everybody's perspective on where they're coming from. And I think that is leads into the next question on, so these limited partners, let's dive into, you know, where does the money come from? Who are the type of limited partners? And, you know, when you're talking about the private equity funds, you know, they're deploying lots of capital. How do, you know, where do the limited partners come from? And generally, you know, how are they spanning their portfolio? Uh, so the, the capital sources for the venture funds are endowments, um, universities, insurance companies, institutions, you know, large endowments. And venture is a alternative asset class inside their overall 
portfolio mix. It, it also could entail private you know, family offices. Some family offices will be, and I know some family offices that do have venture exposure, whether it's direct investment into VCs, uh, into venture-backed companies, or um, into funds. And so, you know, they're looking to raise so that so VCs that get a partnership together will draft a offering memorandum. They'll go around to accredited investors. So you typically you're not going to just have anyone off the street invest in this. Primarily because a they don't excuse me they don't have capital because you're not going to take small slugs of capital. You want you know if you're raising a 250 million dollar fund, you're going to want people to do you know 20. $25 million maybe, or 10 to $15 million placements. And so, because you want to have, you don't want managing your investor base, just like an entrepreneur thinks about managing their cap table, venture capitalists need to think about managing their cap table. And the other thing is, the, you know, the accredited investor nature of it. You need to have, it comes from sophisticated people who have, this is risk capital. So you have to have the wherefore-all to be able to put this capital in a high-risk asset class that you won't see for 10 years because these partnerships agreements are 10 years long. You can extend them, but I mean, this is highly illiquid capital that's put into high-risk ventures with the idea that you are going to get very high returns for the you know, differential risk that you're assuming. Mm-hmm. So when you have, let's say you've got the, a bunch of limited partners that have you know, aggregated and they've got the $250 million or whatever, you know, the, the yeah. funds that they want to deploy... How do they, because I know like a lot of private equity funds, whether they raise like, you know, a $300 million fund or they've got a couple of them that get into the billions, I, they, you know, have a handful of companies that are, you know, mid-market, healthy, mature companies. In this, is there a certain amount of companies that they like? Because, I mean, is there a certain, you know, it's kind of like gambling, right? It, to a certain extent where they place their money in all these different companies and they expect, you know, a few of them. What are kind of the ratios and what are the expectations that they have for how they deploy that? Well, I mean, there's, Everyone's got a different strategy on how they deploy capital, and that's part of what limited partners are going to look towards and help evaluate who they deploy capital to. So uh, there's no standard playbook, but you know they are going to invest. You know, depending upon the nature of the size of the fund, you're going to invest in X number of companies because if you raise, if a company raises a five million dollar round and it's syndicated between two funds, so each puts two and a half in. You're going to need to reserve a certain amount of capital if you if you're going to take additional positions because one of the strategies that you want to make sure that you do is as a venture investor you want to maintain a certain percentage typically of ownership and so you, the five million dollars is not going to get you to the finish line usually because it Got always it. take it always takes longer and more money than you ever expect which is a, <laughs> which is one tip for one tip for entrepreneurs. Um, and so you're going to want to maintain that prorated position. So you're going to want to be um, contributing in downstream rounds. So you're going to need to reserve. So you'll need to map out how much money you have, how many deals you think you're going to do at what size, uh, account for reserves, account for salaries, et cetera, and kind of do an entire budget and work backwards from that. Which is interesting. What, what, what is the main, t- the, the percentage that most people like to reserve? But a percentage is hard to say. What I would say is, is that, you know, if you're going to put, you know, you're probably going to put, most funds are probably, you know, you're probably going to think you're going to put, depending on the size of the fund, anywhere from five to, you're probably going to put 10 to $20 million to work in a deal, give or take. 
could be more, could be less. Well, and the, and the percentage I'm assuming changes as the different potential partners or people pop up and you want to make sure you're maintaining the level of involvement that you want in that specific deal. Yeah. And, you know, depending upon what kind of fund you are, you know, sometimes it may, sometimes you may just decide if the deal is, is incredibly highly valued and the valuation just keeps going up and up, then you just ride, you know, the value keeps increasing for you, but your percentage of the ownership may actually dec- decline, but the pie gets so much bigger that you're fine with that. So it all depends. Got it. So well, let's, uh, dive in a little bit to who are the limited partners and how to, cause I, when you and I were talking at the conference, it was, you know, some of the main things that we want to kind of dive into is as an entrepreneur goes out and is picking, you know, a VC to partner up with, there's a lot to take into consideration. So not only do the, the ventures that are out there deploying to specific deals are looking for things. And I think that that's a whole episode in itself, but it's also when you flip flop it as the entrepreneur is looking to raise the money and looking at the different types of deals and the different types of partners, you know, what is the involvement and what is the, the kind of the process look like as the different types of partnerships that are out there? Well, I, so from an entrepreneur's perspective, if I was to raise money or if I was to tell, you know, work with an entrepreneur to talk to them about how they're doing it, what I would say is you need to understand who is doing the type, the types of deals that you, you are. So if you're a, you know, if you're a software company, you know, who does software deals or if you're a uh, software as a service company, you know, deploying your, your uh, solution as a SaaS solution, who does, who does SaaS deals and knowing who they are, knowing so because they've got expertise they're going to understand these general markets then also know what deals they've done understand who is in your ecosystem and you don't you you don't want to approach somebody who's done a competitive deal and it doesn't matter that you may not think that they're competitive to you um if the venture firm thinks that 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 they compete then that's where that's the definition of competition because then you're going to spend all your time trying to convince them that you don't compete with, with their investment and not talking about necessarily what you do and how you can help make them money. Um, but then you look for opportunities, then you kind of come up with a small, a short list of people of, you know, who do you think for whatever reason makes sense to invest in your company? And that could be from an individual par- partner perspective, where they sit in the ecosystem, what they can do, a whole host of things. And then I would put together, a, you know, a target list of comp- of firms that you want to approach. Well, isn't it so interesting too? Because I mean, it, you know, when you think about, there's a lot of capital out there that wants to be deployed from a lot of these different big institutions, and which we can talk about in a little bit. But you know, as the entrepreneur coming from their perspective, is like you could, finding the money, whether it's smart money, dumb money, whether it's strategic money. You know, I think there's a lot of different things to think about because you know, getting $5 million to build your payroll and, you know, do the R&D or whatever it is to deploy, it doesn't mean that they're going to, you know, necessarily provide value to you in that, is it, in, is that what kind of what you're referring to the ecosystem as like how you can you leverage their talents or skills or whatever it might be? Well, from a, from a venture partner perspective, you know, these part of their job is to you know, it's not just money. It's also all the other things that they can help you do because at the end of the day, they're supposed to help grow these companies. So they should, um, Dave Hornick wrote an interesting uh, piece on it, you know, that was linked on his Twitter feed the other day about um, what makes a good board member. 
and good activities of a board member. I thought it was interesting just because, you know, he talks about making yourself available to provide insight and help and help because, you know, a CEO's job, you know, think about it is very, you know, at a startup company is very lonely. You are the, you are, you are the person, you are the man or the woman who's, who everything, who's, you know, the weight of the world of that company is on your shoulders. And now $15 million. (laughs) And and that can be a very lonely position. And so you need to have others that can help you be resources to you. And a lot of people look to you, but then, so on top of the capital and the fuel, it's, do you, you know, we're trying to sell into XYZ company. I see that you know people there. Can you help, can you help me get connected? Because we're having a hard time finding the right person, helping recruit people, helping close people to come to work for them, providing candidates, um, a whole host, a litany of things around how you help build up the corporation and how you help build the, how you help build the business. And that, and that time into the company accretes back to them in an increased valuation. Well, and so that kind of goes into your, one of your first comments about how you spend your time because you can leverage time with those kind of connections and that those are, those are significantly valuable if they, if they line up with the right, you know, the, the VC lines up with the right, you know, business or right deal. Yes. And, and return on time is a huge, you know, time is the one resource that we all get an equal amount of 168 and, hours a week. And it's, <laughs> and it's, and it's non-regenerative. So once it's gone, it's gone. And so how, you know, finding people who can help you maximize that and create value. Because money, like you said, money is money. But sometimes you might just need money. I mean, this is all situational too. If you, tr- if you truly need cash early on, but, you know, thinking about how you finance your company, I guess stepping back, you want to keep it moving forward and having people who have been there, done that on the team and making sure that there's room for them on the cap table. So each time you go back and raise another round, that there's plenty of room for additional people to add value versus just taking large amounts of money from people who may not be able to add any value or who who won't stick by you or won't be by your by your side when things get a little dark. Well, I'm sure with your experience, you've got a couple stories that come to mind in a scenario like that. So maybe if you want to toss up a story that, you know, a short story on someone that you've seen do it really well, maybe someone that you've seen kind of go south when the pressure got on. Well, so when we think about that, professional investors have a tendency that, you know, they're, that's it. This is in their job description and things don't all, you know, and every professional investor's got examples of situations where things worked out really well. And things didn't work out so well. And that's the nature of their business. Because mm-hmm. in reality, most of the time, it's probably not going to go well because they're kind of in the business of outsized returns. Right. <laughs> and nothing ventures, nothing gained. That's why it's called venture capital. You know, so you can figure out, you know, who, you know, when you think about who you line up with, you know, there are, you know, everybody clicks with different people for different reasons. And so even inside, you know, an investor base, you're going to find people that you may more naturally have an affinity for over others who can provide certain things. And that would be part of your decision-making process in terms of who do you approach and who do you target to get into your company. So, um, 
because we don't really talk about, you know, horror stories and everybody's got them, but you know, well, and I think, you know, instead of necessarily talking about a horror story, I think it's about, you know, one of the biggest things that I, I don't think people think about until afterwards, which is kind of the whole start, build, grow, finish, exit. And it's how that partner is going to be involved in all the parts of those, because you're just as married as with them as you are with your spouse. And, you know, how probably, they, probably more so <laughs> I would, I would agree with that. Right. <laughs> you know, a hundred percent. And so how you're picking that partner, whether you're, you're clicking with them, there's the strategic value that they got, but how they interact in the decision-making, I think is important. And, you know, I think that's a lot of things that things that happen in the, the PE world where they don't realize who they're partnering up with and whether it's micromanagement or no oversight. And so when you think about that whole journey, with as the entrepreneur is partnering up with the VC and, and working with them, what are some of the key decisions or the, the questions that they need to be asking about whether it's when something goes wrong, how do they deal with it, you know, when and how they exit? I mean, what are the things that they can do to be, what kind of questions do you think that they should be asking along that? Well, you know, if, if we're talking about evaluating, it's talking to people, you know, the interesting thing is today, you know, information is widely available compared to where it was. 15 to 20 years ago. So it's talking to others who have worked with them and understanding, you know, you know, almost kind of doing kind of reference checks on people that you're, you're wanting to do business with, or, or and part of that could be in in the approach process, because you're going to hopefully try to find somebody who can make an introduction to somebody, you know, and in that introduction process, you can ask the questions around. So what is it like? Because that's a you know that is a great way to get in front of somebody is to be referred into by somebody who's known to them, and they can you and you can kind of figure out what it will be like to work with them. You know, one thing is that you know the, it's also how you handle bad news as well, and how you deal with it, and how you present it to your board. Because the board never likes to be surprised, mm-hmm. and so even if things aren't going necessarily great, you're probably going to be rewarded well. If you keep the board apprised and keep them ahead of the curve rather than feeling like they're being told about bad news after either after it's occurred or after it's too late. Well, I think that I think you hit on a really important topic because, you know, I think a lot of entrepreneurs, their biggest fear is, I mean, they had this idea, they they birthed this baby of a business that's going to be out into the world and who they're partnering up with, how they're dealing with the the problems. And the, the, the biggest fear is. Travis with Uber, you know, understanding like I can be ousted from the company that I started or the jobs or all these, you know, the story, the big stories that everybody's heard of, you know, how do those situations come to be? And then how do you protect yourself if you're the entrepreneur? And then what are, what are ways that you can mitigate that situation? Well, I mean, I think it's one interesting perspective is to have everybody looks to a handful of icons who birthed, started their company, took them public, and are still either CEO or chairman today. Mm-hmm. And there's only a few of those people. <laughs> right. And there's eight, and there's eighteen thousand plus startups in the United States today. So most people, most entrepreneurs, won't end up there. And that's not necessarily a bad thing because you know, do you you know, do you really want to run a company of twenty thousand people? Yeah. And so everybody's got a different passion. And so, but it's figuring out how you, how you lay that in and work with your investor base, you know, over time to grow the company and your interests are aligned when it's, when you're talking about trying to grow the company 
and and create value because you know you as the founder have equity in this company and so whether it's you getting it to a certain stage and then you know taking a chairman role or taking you know maybe your passion is product development and somebody else needs to come in and take it to the next level is that necessarily a bad thing not necessarily as long as the value is continued to be you know to be created for everyone that it's hard for you know having never been an entrepreneur myself so it's easier for me to have that perspective after having not gone through that because at the end of the day i think everybody's trying to make sure that something's bigger and better at the end you know when the time for when the ultimate time for exit is such that you know everybody's walking away with something for all the hard work and the risk that they took oh i think that was very well said and and it's a degree of self-awareness and i don't know how many people or you know entrepreneurs or deals that have been blown up because how often do you see that the entrepreneur has unrealistic expectations of becoming Jeff Bezos or someone that's running this company and doesn't realize where they fit into the storyline as the company grows. I mean, how do you guys, and how do VC, how do people deal with that? Um, that's something that, you know, the board has to, you know, that's one of the things that would fall under the board, the board's purview. And it's about, you know, giving the CEO, the, you know, giving him some feedback on how things are going because part of the job is, you know, hopefully the founder is growing because they're, they're going to learn a lot. Founders are going to learn a lot going through this process. And you don't always get it right the first time. And most founders are serial founders. So going, you know, and what can you pick up and what can you learn? And what do you not do again? You know, what do you do differently the, se- the first time that you, you know, the second time that you didn't, that you didn't do the first time. So what it's kind of, go ahead. What I was going to say, what do you think the biggest mistakes that entrepreneurs make as they're going through this process? I mean, is there like a couple that you see that are common, you know, trends that you, you, you could kind of almost see them coming because they happen so often? Well, I mean, I guess the, the, the two things that we see consistently is, and it's not, it, you really can't fault anybody for it, but it always takes more time and more money than anyone ever anticipates. And, and it's for a variety of reasons, but one, you know, part of it is, you know, how quick product adoption happens but when a lot of times when these deals are being pitched, it's all blue sky. I mean, these are markets that will evolve and we and investors and entrepreneurs think they know how the world is going to evolve, but then life starts to happen and other competitor <laughs> other competitors enter the market and people find out that oh, it's not as useful. You know, they didn't like it for X necessarily, but they may have liked it for Y, you know, for for a different solution. And so that's when you start to get real feedback and that's the art of entrepreneurship is how to deal with all that feedback in a, in a real time basis and um, process it all, take it all in and continue to push forward. And the analogy we use, it's kind of like when you leave San Francisco to go to Hawaii sailing, it's not a straight shot. Mm -hmm. The art art of sailing is tacking and it's going back and forth and catching the wind. And sometimes you're going to, sometimes the wind's going to die and you're going to have to tack and figure out how to way to pick up the pick up the the, dra- the drift to keep you moving towards Hawaii, even though it may not seem like you're moving towards Hawaii. Well, and I think that's a great analogy too, because I mean, who you're sailing with are the people that you need to be on the same level of communication with. Because if you're not communicating, there's no way you're going to actually get there because it takes it takes a whole team. Yeah, and then if your time and if your time horizon is off, typically you know you're, you're spending cash while the time extends. So it typically takes more money 
and then there becomes a time at, at which point you you think that there may be optimal time to turn to turn up the energy and so that requires typically a lot more cash so how do people go about that situation then is it i mean if they're communicating most of the time they're probably all it's it's probably closer to a non-event but you know as i mean is there certain breaking points where you see people shut down the 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 deal because it's just there's no you know, sight in my, or there's not no um, light in sight or like, how do they go about actually making those decisions? I mean, cause if it's a 10 year time horizon, I mean, that gives you quite a bit of leeway, but how do, how do you deal with the time and cash horizon? Well, I mean, you know, in a, in a specific situation, a lot of times what you'll find is, you know, you, it's time to raise your D round, so to speak. And you've got your other investors in, but you typically, you'll need to find a new lead investor. And the inability to find that new lead investor would be a trigger to say, okay, well, we either need to sell the company or shut it down. If we can't find anybody to buy it, we'll, we'll need to shut it down. Just because we've, we've reached a stage at where, okay, for a variety of reasons, we can't, you know, we're not going to continue because we may, have hit our, we may have hit the spend that we thought we were going to spend. And we need somebody else to help validate what's going on or help spread the risk. Got it. Got it. it- Let's uh, shift gears a little bit because I want to make sure we we talk about it a quite a, uh, or for a little bit is you know as we looked at you know where these funds are coming from you mentioned at the beginning from the endowments and the universities or insurance companies and such but um, there's this new kind of wave happening in corporate or corporations that you and I have talked about which I think is very interesting because it's it's something that's different for them trying to hit the returns but can you explain a little bit how corporations are getting into the VC game because of kind of the market landscape? So um, we've actually spent a lot of time talking to some of our large clients about this. And I've done some work for some of our clients um, on deals. And it's not so much a... uh, The the big trend that we're seeing is the, the tech enablement of industries. And so you look at it in financial services, healthcare, insurance, transportation, logistics, you know, there's a lot of things going on that um, are being tech enabled. Mm-hmm. And so as a response to that, we're finding that corporations, some corporations are saying, OK, we may no longer be able to innovate as effectively inside as companies, as entrepreneurs can outside. You know, and so what we may do is <clears throat> raise up our head and decide to look around and look at what's going on out, outside our four walls. And they find that it helps give them a, a greater perspective on what's happening. And in a lot of cases, it's, it's a better approach to take because it's better to better look around to see what's coming as opposed to wait for somebody to show up on your doorstep and show that they can all of a sudden, you know, apply technology in an innovative way and take a significant piece of, of, of margin out of your business. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... Does that, that uh, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, does that follow the the kind of the philosophy? Are you familiar with Peter Diamante and the, the exponential organizations where they're, these big companies are buying these, you know, incubators and leaving them away from the mothership because it's so difficult with the bureaucracy of some of the bigger companies. And they're trying to almost, you know, develop the company that could put them out of business, like the blockbuster starting like a Netflix almost or something like that. I mean, is that kind of what you're seeing or is it more just about staying in line with where their current business is that they're just kind of slowly venturing outside a little, a little bit. Uh, it de- a lot of it depends upon the nature of the organization and what their DNA looks like. But, you know, a lot of times it can be 
a mix of we will get some financial return for this. It will be we can maybe find commercial deals, you know, technology that we can put into our product. Maybe it's technology that we can sell. They've worked on some deals where there's been side arrangements where we're where the client our clients investing in in technology, and there's also they're going to sell the product through the, a dealer network that they had, and so we think we we get a double lift, and you know, and maybe something we might ultimately buy. You know, if if it becomes very successful, maybe we may want to buy this thing, um, or we may not. It may just give us exposure to what's going on into an evolving area. And it just gives us better visibility into how the world is developing. And so it's a mix of those. It can be a mix of those things. And it depend, depends upon the overall strategic, you know, the nature of what the initiative is being under, you know, being uh, pushed forward based upon. But, I mean, typically what we see is, and to be successful, I think what, what corporations need is a, is a kind of a twofold approach is you need somebody who can understands what the wild looks like you know who can go out into the wild and has been out in the wild and has done deals and has seen technology and has worked with entrepreneurs but then you typically need to pair them with somebody who's who knows how to navigate the ecosystem inside the corporation because it a lot of stuff can come can be brought back in and killed <laughs> and so yeah. um i had a friend who used to who had that problem back in the late 90s, early 2000s for a very large global conglomerate. And he would come out to Silicon Valley and he would find all this really cool stuff and he would go back and he was headquartered in, he was in Europe and he'd go back and nobody wanted to see it because it wasn't invented there. And he became very frustrated by that. And so having kind of an outside inside ability because you can help, you know, getting good deal flow is a critical success factor of any venture investor, whether you're corporate or institutional. But if you're, you know, navigating the internal organization, if you're being brought in from the outside, can be very difficult because you don't have the history. And having somebody who knows the history of the organization and what's been tried before and who sits where and where the bodies are buried and who put them there is important. Well, I do. And you know what's really important about all the stuff that you've kind of explained here is, you know, for an entrepreneur to actually successfully go through the intro, start, grow, exit phase, knowing all the stuff that you just talked about is crucial because you're understanding the motives of the buyer. And I think, you know, in my perspective, there'd be a, a heck of a lot more successful partnerships if you understood why these buyers are doing or all the, the, the partners are coming in and doing this stuff because then you will have a pretty good self-awareness of what the end goal is. Instead of just navigating yourself, trying to go, you know, steer yourself, instead of to Hawaii, you know, mm -hmm. completely over to New Zealand or something like that, because you've got at least the same compass in where you're going. Mm -hmm. So as we kind of shift this around a little bit, what are, you know, when, when, what are the actual physical ways that people go out and they actually do these introductions? Are the VCs out there? cold calling or is it networking if you're an entrepreneur to get partnered up like what are the actual ways that all the commingling actually happens so vcs are out speaking at events um they out they're out attending events <clears throat> they're very public in their profiles in terms of you know web pages and you know most people know how to get to them what venture folks are looking for are kind of curated deals so from their network of people that they went to school with, that they maybe have funded before. You know, they're looking for 
introductions. And so it's trying to find, you know, and so when you look at the ecosystem, there are people that will help make introductions. And that can be people that they have funded before, people who have been successful entrepreneurs before, um, service providers who work with them. So we make introductions. If we think something's interesting, there will be there may be opportunities for us to make introductions. Bankers, you know, the 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 bankers that work closely with the venture people and help uh, provide venture debt and other things are good uh, sources uh, to make introductions, as well as attorneys. You know, attorneys that um, a lot of times are sitting in, you know, acting as secretary or sitting in the board meetings with the you know with venture investors on other deals, and so they've got they're in, in, in close proximity um, to people who are looking for more deal flow. You know, that is that is qualified, that is some degree of qualification, you know, some degree of qualification. Because the challenge is, is how do you wade through everything that's out there? Well, yeah. And, and like, you know, kind of the ecosystem you keep referring to is, is you're also really vetting the individuals too. So it might be a great idea and all this, but I mean, you got to figure out what degree of crazy is this person that's bringing this, this deal to you. So if you can vet them out through the, the created ecosystem, you know, you're as a, as a VC, you're mitigating a lot of your risk because you've got a lot of people that are vouching for you. Yeah. And somebody's not going to, because of the way it's kind of like a, un, it's kind of like an unverified uh, Yelp review. But you know, if I, if I send off five crazy ideas to people, they're going you know, to stop answering my emails. <laughs> so right. I have to have a degree of conviction that something's going to happen as does anybody else who passes along to say, Hey, it's worthwhile. And to take to have somebody take a look at this and do you think that those situations like you just referred to are they more successful if someone has an idea that says hey here's you know the few companies here's what i think here's why i would be a good fit for that like literally looking way down the horizon i mean is it too bold to kind of be that presumptuous or is it more beneficial because they've got a little bit more foresight um i'm not sure i understood but so if, if you, you know, if an entrepreneur like sent, sent out a, a little note that says, hey, you know what, here's my idea. I've got a lot of conviction. Here's what's going on. But if they took it a step further and said, hey, you know, this is, I, b I believe, the potential exit options or the people that the buyers are here's literally, you know, a couple steps in advance. I mean, is it almost laying the map out even a little bit more? Would that be something that would be more beneficial or do you think it would be too presumptuous and potentially hurt the, 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 the communication line? I don't think it's too presumptuous, but I, I don't know if it's necessary because you don't know how things will, you don't know if that's the way the world will develop. That's mm -hmm. the assumption. Mm -hmm. But if you can paint out a picture that says, we think we can, you know, we can provide a solution that solves this pain point and we know that, and we've got three customers that have bought it, then that gets their interest because, you know, if you're solving a high value problem, there's probably many more people out there that will pay that will that will pay for it. And then you spend, but what you spend your time doing is finding out ways to get very targeted introductions as opposed to a you know a, a cold call or an email mm -hmm. drop into into somebody's box. You try to get somebody to share the opportunity with them and seeing if there's you know and on your behalf. Yep. Yep. And I think I think that's more powerful. And then, yeah, you know, and making sure that you communicate that there, you know, that there is a huge market out there as well. Right. And I think that piggybacks into one of my uh, last questions is, 
you and I had talked about, you know, there's like this sliding scale from you got the angel investors that are looking for the R&D, the, the seed rounds that are really just trying to get something off the ground. And then you in the, in the VC world, there's kind of this there's this narrow spectrum in my mind. And then because you, you and I had talked where then eventually you get to the point where you could get different types of financing, whether it's from a PE firm or a family office or whatever, where, you know, how in like the operational maturity of the business or where, you know, cause you get like, you, you keep referring to the people that have got some customers, they've proven that there's a problem. You know, what are some of the criteria that in that spectrum that you would really like to highlight? Well, not every deal is a venture deal. You know, yeah, you, you know, venture deals need to be companies that have the potential to deliver outsized returns. If you, if everything works the way you think it's going to work, you know, so opening a coffee shop, you know, on the corner of your hometown is not a, is not necessarily a venture deal. Opening up a global coffee chain maybe is. So, you know, size of scale. So it's, it's understanding where it fits in that. And private equity deals are typically going to be put into companies that are already operating companies that are typically generating profit. You know, so they're EBITDA-driven, profit-driven, where you can do carve-outs of divisions or very interesting things that may have a lot of financial engineering around them. Whereas venture deals tend to be deals that are, it's kind of brave new world and it's uh, better, faster, cheaper, but it's better by factor of 10 or 50 or 100. And it's faster by 100. The fact that everything's not a venture deal. And again, it's kind of the difference between the coffee shop and the caribou coffee. And, and you know, the way different, it's, it's the big idea. And I think, you know, Jeff, with your spectrum and your oversight of how much you see, you know, can you kind of give us a little bit of the market overview of what you're seeing? What are the big ideas that are out there? Because I think you you mentioned that the tech-enabled industries are disrupting a lot of things. And I think a lot of people see that. But mm -hmm. what are some, where are the big ideas coming from right now? What are things that people need to be looking out for? Or where do you, what are, where's the the movement happening? Well, if I knew that, <laughs> right. if I knew that, my wife would be much happier. We'd be living a, le a much lower stress lifestyle, et cetera. And you would not uh, be talking to me. <laughs> I'd still talk to you, but you know. <laughs> sure. But uh, yeah, I, that's why I tell my partners, it's like, because uh, they always ask me, was well, this going to be like the next big thing? I'm like, if I knew that, we wouldn't be having this conversation. <laughs> I wouldn't, I'd be, I'd be calling it in from the beach. But I think the trend on tech enablement, I mean, that has a huge tail. And, and I think that reaches across the country because you, you, I think you're going to find there will be people in the next several years who find ways to apply technology into businesses that dramatically drop cost and take significant costs out of business, enhance margins, or just drop prices altogether. When you look at, I mean, we're, you know, we're looking, EY is looking at the application of technology in our business. We're taking a serious look at that and look, figuring out ways to uh, take analytics into our audit practice and provide much greater transparency on trends, much greater analysis in a much quicker time and, and in a way no one ever could, probably. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's just one example. You would think that we would not be... You know, besides buying laptops, you would think that's all we would be doing. But no, we're looking at that because we think that is the future of how we 
you know, deliver our service. And I think there's numerous industries across the, across the U.S. and around the world that can reap the benefit of that, especially when you start thinking about, you know, all the, you know, and this is sounds a little cliche-ish because I hear it a lot, but all the data that gets thrown off from all the digital footprints that are being made every time a keystroke happens and how you take that, compile that, parse it, and make sense of it, compare it, analyze it, and deliver a better solution. And that's every industry. Like any, and what I find interesting too, if we're just, as we're talking kind of global, you know, technology trends like this too, because I, you know, I see this whole wave of baby boomers that are going to be end up as they're looking to exit or sell their companies, but there's the, the technology disruption in every industry is so huge that, you know, where the value is placed on different industries and different companies is going to be so interesting to see how it all comes out because, Someone could create a software platform, like you said, for 50 grand, and they can create an entire ecosystem of inventory that already exists versus because they got data versus the service distribution models that are, you know, very prelevant in the U.S. right now. Where, yeah, where is value in, in a digital environment, in a, in a rapidly uh, growing, enhancing digital mobile first environment? Where is value? You know, and how do you, you know, in thinking about it in that realm, from an entrepreneur's perspective and how do you capture value through a solution that, that that companies can't live without it's really interesting have you ever read the book platform revolution i have not it's a fantastic book that kind of talks about the different kind of way like it, it kind of get dives into the value and where these platforms are creating value and the different kpis that they're mm-hmm. measuring value on because in the digital world there is no inventory or lack of inventory because it's all abundant. So mm-hmm. you you can race to zero marginal cost crazy fast, and it's kind of an interesting concept. When you how do you like you do you project out future value and potentially you could be racing to zero instead or zero cost, right? Hundred percent, hundred percent margin. Well, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it depends. So, right, right, right. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, what I was saying, what I was going to say is that uh, you know, there, it depends on you know, again if someone else comes out with another fifty thousand dollar, you know platform they could undercut you where it's like what it, what business is amazon in because it's all about where they their profit center is and what else can they give away because they had zero marginal costs in other areas well because they understand well, they have such an exp- such exposure to you across so many different um aspects of your life they've got the data <laughs> mm-hmm well, I really appreciate coming on the show, Jeff. I mean, oh, thank all, you. all the different um, pieces that we talked about. If there's one thing that you were to to leave our listeners with that we either talked about that you want to re-highlight or leave them with, what would it be? I think that the, one of the points that I, a couple of points I made is it always takes longer and more money than you ever anticipated. And it's not because, and people always, people are always optimistic and they wouldn't be optimistic, you know, if you're, you can't not be optimistic to be an entrepreneur. So, but it's building in some cushion around that is, is helpful because it gives you more runway from a finance perspective and a time perspective. And being aware of that and how you communicate is huge. Yeah, I, I, I agree. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Jeff. Thank you very much, Ryan. 
Thanks for sticking in there till the end. I hope you enjoyed the episode with Jeff. I think the world of VCs is so intriguing because they're at the forefront of all the best ideas that are happening in the US and in the world and on how all these different companies and all these different industries can take off. And if I had three main takeaways from the interview with Jeff, one was ex- exiting once to a VC is an actual thing. Whereas in you birth an idea, you have this business that you are starting, you've got customers, you've really beta tested the market and have started solving a problem. And partnering up with a VC is a form of an exit because you have to pick a new partner that is going to be in the thick and the thin of everything with you. So really knowing how you're partnering and exiting with that person for that next 10 year stretch. And then again, you'll be time, there will be time to exit because the whole point of that as a return for the different players at the table. So understanding what partner you're partnering up with and where that eventual exit will take you, you might not know, but knowing who you're partnering up with is crazy important. The second is being very self-aware of all the different motives on the team. I think if I can constantly reiterate anything in this show, it's follow the money and you'll find the motivation. So understanding where the money's coming from, who are the partners? What are the what are the motives that the partners have? Because when something comes to a challenging decision, there will have to be decisions made, and knowing where the motives are will help you navigate those scenarios so you can have the best outcome that you possibly want. Which brings us to the third takeaway, which is the ability to communicate with your investors, with your board, with all the people that are riding on this idea and this business is really important and. Being transparent with that communication will always help you come out the other side in the best light possible. I really hope you enjoyed the episode with Jeff. If you're liking the show, please do me a huge favor. Go on to iTunes and give me a rating. So until next week, I hope you have a good one.